uh, healing. And this sermon series is all about unpacking the biblical understanding of what love really means. Because let, let, let me just give you this example. Um, it's funny how with my wife, we both have completely different understandings of the word maybe. Whenever my, let me tell you how it goes. Whenever my wife wants to do something that I'm unsure about, my response is maybe. Now, let me tell you how the interpretation is completely different between the two of us. See, my wife interprets the word maybe as there's a strong possibility that this is going to happen. Whereas my version of maybe is it's probably not going to happen. Same word, two completely different understandings of it. And it's funny, we, we, we talk about that a lot. But uh, today, as we continue this series, uh, I want to ask you a question. You know, I love questions, and I ask a lot of them as we study God's word. But here's my big question for today. Who is worthy of my love? Don't answer it. I'm going to answer that for us at the end. Um. Again, while, while questions for us are important, and I believe we, we see them clearly in Scripture, or, or I like to unpack Scripture through questions, understand that my next few points aren't going to directly answer that question, but hold fast with me, because at the end of it, I'm going to answer that question, okay? And, and you're going to see from God's Word how that question is answered. But um, to illustrate that question, who is worthy of my love, have you ever heard somebody say the phrase, um, if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. You ever heard that question before? Maybe, maybe not. Whether it's been asked that way, you might have heard it a certain way, or you yourself might have used that in a particular setting. Um, you know, if, if you're not willing to accept me for the way that I am right now in my ugliest moment, you don't deserve my love. You know, I, I think a lot of us might act that way or have encountered someone uh, who acts that way. Think about it, um, if you're in a, a, a relationship with somebody, you're mar maybe married or engaged to somebody, especially if you're married. Um, I remember in college, there was something called the freshman 15. Uh, I didn't experience that. I was good. But there's something when you get married, man. It's like if you get married, there's like a, there's like a, 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 a marriage 30 that gets put on. I, I don't know. Maybe some of you got like no idea about that. But I'm telling you, if you're going to get married, watch out for it because you're like, I'm married. I'm good. I got a ring on it. I don't need to try anymore. I don't need to exercise anymore. Don't do that. It's not good. Um, but, you know, do, do you still love that person if they have some random weight gains that happen? Um, what about if somebody you you love is really cranky in the morning? Again, for those of you that do know my wife, she is not a morning person, man. She is like like just a crocodile roll with like the blankets in if I try to like time to get up <sighs> she, she gets oh man she's violent in the morning um, and there's a lot of people whether you know you're you're married or not that you know they are not a morning person stay away from them if I if I want them to to love me when this is over I better I better leave them alone um, maybe you have a friend who is just that friend that's always got to look for trouble they're the person that loves to instigate. They love to just get under people's skins. They love to push buttons, whether it's justified or not. Um, I can say without a shadow of the doubt, of a doubt, I am that friend. Um, I love to do that. Um, 
just yesterday, for example, my wife and I were going to run some errands in the morning. And uh, listen, I love and I want us to understand that our church, our literal, the, the, the building, the property we want to use to serve us in the community, ultimately in, in honor and glory of God. But a big pet peeve of mine is how this place is a litter haven. And I've noticed that I think people are just not just like willy nilly throwing things. They like come to dump trash here. There's a tailpipe and a muffler on the other side and some CVS containers over there. Don't go look. Don't go look. It's got to be cleaned up. I found a car battery over there. I'm like, what is this? I'm going to sell this stuff on eBay or Craigslist. But but I, I noticed as we were getting ready to leave, I see a truck pull up and go all the way on the long side of, of, the, of the driveway and hugging the curb and slowing down. And I was like, it's about a litter. And my wife's like, what? It's about a litter. Watch. She's like, no, 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 don't, don't bother, don't look. And I, I back up slowly out of, the, out of the parking spot and I pull up and I, I was going to get out of the car and be like, hey, but I said, you know what, no, I want to make him sweat. I just want to awkwardly stare inside of the car. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know, especially if like, I look, put my arm out my window. I got my tattoos and anything like that. He doesn't know I'm a pastor or anything like that. I'd be like, uh-oh, I shouldn't have done this today, man. And, and the guy gets out of his car, and I, I don't even think he looked at me. So, so much for me staring at him. But the whole time, the whole purpose of this is litter aside and all that, my wife was horribly uncomfortable with me doing this. She's like, please just leave it alone. Please just don't get me in the middle of this. No, like, I don't want to be in the car right now while you're doing this thing, man. You don't know. He could be crazy. He could jump you right back. I was like, sure, let's do it. Um, but she, she doesn't like that. You know, if I don't get my order right in, in, in the line at, at, at the fast food, I'm the guy who will go in and be like, hey, I asked specifically for this. I paid for this, I want, and I won't be disrespectful because I worked in the food industry. I know the work, but it's like, hey, I paid for this. I want it this way. And if you can't do it, okay, just let me know. But she, she always gets so mad at me. Anyway, you know, you know people like that or, or maybe people that are just straight up impulsive. You know, people that say, I, I'm going to do this, and you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not going to help you right now. But if you say something that you think is going to help them understand the error of their way, they might get offended at you. Like, how, how dare you tell me that I can't do this? And we're just trying to be honest. Like, hey, that's pretty impulsive, man. Like, that, that's not going to help you. There, there are a lot of ugly qualities. There are a lot of unmentionable characteristics that at the end of the day, I think in our heart of hearts, we personally can take a self-inventory and say, you know, it's probably not the best quality about me. But what I want us to focus on is really that question. Are we placing limitations on who we're willing to love based on how they treat us or view us or care or not care about us? So hold on to that question. But today, as we seek to answer that question, we're going to be talking about a very famous parable story in Scripture that many of us know very well. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure a lot of us have heard that story over the years. And if you haven't, hey, today's your lucky day. Welcome to Glad Tidings. Uh, but in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, it says this. On one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test 
Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's how Jesus responds. He says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answered, well, here's what you do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus answered. Do this and you will live. Okay, so let me just give you the context and the setting of, of this particular passage of Scripture. If you read just a few verses before Luke 10, 25, you see Jesus had sent the disciples out two by two to go and to minister and to do incredible things. And they come back and they're rejoicing. Jesus, everything that you said we should do would happen. Even demons obey us and they come out of people. And Jesus goes on and he, he says a lot of things there. He goes, thank God, not that you have power over demons, but that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And then he goes on and he, he starts to praise God because Jesus is happy about this. And he says something so profound and important for our context right here. He says, Father, I thank you that these things, the power, the supernatural, the, the fulfillment of, of our coming into the world to reveal God to humanity, all of these times that are being fulfilled right now, I thank you that it has been received by not those who are wise, not those who follow the, the wisdom of the world, but those who receive it as children. Those who have an innocence. Those who are just faith-filled in spite of all of the incomprehensibleness of the miraculous, the unknowable. I thank you for that. So Jesus praises God because the, the very unknowableness of his miraculous power his goodness his mercy his grace has just been experienced by those who walk by faith like a child he says go out and do and they do by faith and they come back and like god what you said happened it happened he's like and that's why it happened because you had faith in me if you didn't have faith to trust me if you tried to use the wisdom of the world and comprehend every aspect of what i told you to do it never would have worked so i thank god for that now starts our section here. An expert in the law stood up, probably as Jesus was teaching at some point, and he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So let me give you this point. His response, Je whoa, whoa. he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is trying to help him understand through his own knowledge what he already knows. Because an expert in the law was probably the best way that we can define it today. It's probably like a lawyer. But specifically, he was an expert in the Pentateuch. He was an expert in the Judeo law. Something that Jesus fulfilled. Didn't do away with, but fulfilled. And now he's trying to appeal to his wisdom, his knowledge, what he understands. And he goes, okay, I know you're an expert in our scripture. What do you think you need to do to inherit eternal life? And he summarizes the whole law perfectly. This, this is correct. He says, love the Lord your God with your whole being and every aspect of who you are. Love God, sacrifice, give for him, glorify him, love him above all else, and your neighbor. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Now, here, here's the point that, that I want us to see. It's clear and plain, and it shouldn't be 
passed over. Loving God means loving people. Loving God means loving people. When we read this scripture, it almost looks like two separate commands. And while technically it is, there are two different imperatives that we see here. They're inextricably linked. You cannot separate the two. They both serve a purpose to fulfill the ultimate goal of glorifying God. When you say, God, I love you. Yes, there's a lot that you can do to love God. But ultimately, we saw last week and we see all throughout the New Testament that if you say you really love God, you love others. You serve others. You prove your love for God by loving others. You cannot say one is more important. Well, God, loving God is more important, but to prove it, you love others. Okay, so, and again, if, if we love God, there's only one way to prove it, and that's by loving others. So uh, I, I just think one important text to help verify and solidify that claim is John chapter 21, verse 15. It's not on the screen, but it says uh, this, Peter, do you love me? It's after Jesus had risen from the grave and he's having some final encounters with his followers and his disciples. And he has one with Peter, Peter, who had just recently fulfilled what Jesus said he would do, deny him three times as Jesus was being persecuted and, and laid off to be crucified. Jesus had told him, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. You're going to deny me three times. No, God, I'll never do that. I'll follow you even to death. Peter, understand, I'm telling you right now, you're going to deny me. Sure enough, he denies him three times. He's, he's ashamed. He feels unworthy. Now Jesus rises from the dead, and he's having some last moments before he sends him to heaven. And he's saying, hey, hey Peter, I want to ask you a question. Do you love me? Peter said, God, of course I love you. Of course I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Mm, yeah, I, I just said it. I, I love you. Okay, feed my sheep third time peter do you love me lord why do you keep asking me this you know that i love you then feed my sheep once again we see right there if if we claim to love god we're willing to give whatever we can for our neighbor now that's exactly what this expert in the law had knowledge of he understood the reality of what it meant to prove that you love God. You love people. So, loving God means loving people. Now, it seems like this would be a great place to end the story because the guy asked a question. Jesus helped him understand that he already had the answer. He just needed to realize that for himself. But verse 29 reveals something very important for us. It says this, but he, referring to the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So let me ask you another question as a point. Is your faith about you or God? The initial question that this man asked at the start of this passage was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe a, 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 a more simple translation that we can help to understand would be, what do I do to get into heaven? I think that's a fair question. And we need to understand from reading this that 
action deeds have nothing to do with the ultimate result. Remember, the reality of anything that we do in obedience to God's word is an act of thanks and affirmation that I have been saved, not of my works, but of God's works upon the cross. So when we love God and we love people, our neighbors, understand that's not what earns your way into heaven. That's you affirming the fact that I've been saved by the love that God first showed me, and now I respond accordingly. I uphold the integrity of his name and honor him by loving others. So this isn't about really how to be saved, but that's this guy's question nonetheless. And he gets his answer by his own mouth. He professes, well, you love God, you love others. Great. But the man wasn't satisfied with the outcome of this conversation. Remember, his intent was to prove that he knew better than Jesus. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Someone who probably at some point had heard whether it was immediately after what Jesus had said in the verses before about God, I thank you and I praise you that it wasn't through the wisdom of the wise that these things happened, but it was through the innocence of a child. Even if it wasn't that exact moment, that was probably something that Jesus regularly praised God for and taught about, having faith like a child. And no matter how smart you are, that's not what's going to give you the way to heaven. And now this expert doesn't like that. He basically goes, this is what I've committed my life to. I am a trained expert in the content that you are preaching. So I kind of take offense at what you're claiming, Jesus. So we see that his motivation wasn't sincere. This, this has nothing to do with questions being evil as Christians. Questions are good things to ask. I do it all the time. If you have doubts, that doesn't mean you're going to hell. That means that you need to dig deeper. And I'll tell you right now that after all of the undergraduate and graduate training that I've had in theological studies, I have more questions than answers. Just being honest with you. But I'm more edified every single day by the different understanding that I receive from God and his timing. If you have doubts, don't think that, oh, you're less than holy. It's a different message, but the problem is unbelief. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. God didn't say to Thomas, doubting Thomas, stop your doubting. He said, stop your unbelief. Because unbelief is the, the, the idea that, okay, I'm faced with, you know, the unknowable and the knowable and trying to marry the two. You know what? Faith or unbelief. Yes or no. Those are our ultimate responses. So it's when we choose to say, I refuse, whether I understand it or not. That's the problem. Doubting, doubting is not a sin. Understand that. But let's get back to this. So his motivation wasn't sincere. So what does he do? He asks another question. But once again, the motivation behind this question, as we can guess, isn't sincere. And ultimately, his question, who is my neighbor? He's asking our big question for today. Jesus, who's worthy of my love? Who is worthy to receive what I'm going to give them? Okay. Christian faith, I'm going to make a bold statement. The Christian faith is something many claim to have, but many have appropriated it to fit their preferred way of life. A lot 
lot of Christians out there. There's a lot of experts out there. There's a lot of do-gooder, loving, Jesus-following individuals out there. They show they fit, but they exhibit the exact attitude and character of this man right here. He understood the law. He had knowledge of it to the extent that the lay person would not have had. So if anyone was capable of actually contending with the question, first and foremost, about life after death, it would have been this man. But this is an aspect of the New Testament that we see Paul address where he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If you've just read a really good Christian book, awesome, use it, learn from it, but don't think that it makes you infallible in your understanding of the gospel. Don't become a know-it-all just because you read something and you started talking about something that others don't seem to be talking about. The Christian faith is something many claim to have, but many have appropriated it to fit their preferred way of life. This man did not like the content of Jesus' message because it was defying the norms and the standards of a culture that was deeply embedded within the Jewish nation. Let's talk about that. Or we will talk about that within the actual parable. But before we go to the parable, let me finish this thought. And let me just give you a, a pro tip. Um, when you read the Bible, there are times when you're going to be uncomfortable with what you read. Okay? Spoiler alert if you haven't already encountered that. There are going to be things that counteract your preferred way of living, your lifestyles, your preferences, things that make you feel good. And you're eventually going to come against things that you read that say what you're doing you shouldn't be doing. Or there are going to be things that you just plain don't understand. They don't make sense to you yet. You can't comprehend it. And you maybe never will. Here's the pro tip. You ready? If you feel that way, that means you're doing it the right way. This isn't to say that you're never going to have your questions answered. I don't believe that for a second. And once again, I don't believe that we serve an illogical God. But he is God nonetheless, and there are understandings that we will never fully comprehend about who he is. And there are aspects of our relationship with him that are inevitably going to be put under a microscope, and we're going to be uncomfortable. That's a good thing. Come on, that means that you are actually being challenged in your walk. It means that God has characterized and identified certain aspects of who you are that need to morph, that need to change. Why? Because he's an angry, mean God. No, because he wants what's best for you. And while it might seem so far off that, really, God, you want me to stop this? You want me to give this up? You want me to adopt this mentality? That's really what's better for me? It doesn't feel like it is. He's like, I know it doesn't feel like it right now, but trust me, it will. So one more question that I'm going to ask you before we move into the actual parable. Are you using scripture to justify your position or to confront it? 
this is a big temptation. I've done this, and I've got to be careful not to do this. Are you using God's word as a means to solidify why I get to live the way that I want to live? Why I don't have to sacrifice certain things. Why I don't have to give up certain things. Why I don't need to listen to what the pastor is saying. Because look, it also says this over here in the New Testament. Or God did this all the way back in the Old Testament. Knowledge puffs up. Christian, be weary. Be weary of knowledge, not because it's a bad thing, but because if your motivation is insincere, then it is going to be manipulated by Satan and birth in you pride and arrogance and ego and self-justification of things that are obviously sinful in ways that are very dark and very difficult to come back from. Are you using scripture to justify your position or confirm it? All right. So this man asked Jesus, first question, gives his own answer, and it's the right answer. His motivation is insincere. He follows up with another question, trying to prove Jesus wrong and him right, saying, I know better than you, Jesus. So who's my neighbor then? The God part's easy. You know, you got to love God. You can't, you can't come against that. But who's worthy of my Jesus says, you know, let me tell you a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side of the road. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him. Also, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went down to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he took the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. End of parable. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So the punchline of this whole parable is so offensive to the expert in the law. It, it is so radically offensive to his cultural upbringing. Because, okay, we have the story of a man coming from Jerusalem. We don't know for sure, but it's been concluded by many authors that Jesus had in mind here probably a man of Jewish heritage. He was coming from Jerusalem, so there's no guarantee, but he was probably Jewish. And that's to help emphasize the, the point of Jesus' story. And while he's on this roughly 17-mile journey of a 3,000-foot descent, because Jerusalem is elevated from, from the water, so you're going downhill, it doesn't matter. I'm just using stuff. As he's going down, he gets jumped, and he gets beaten, and he gets robbed. 
it was a very common thing in those days for robbers, robbers to wait on roads of that sort. Now, as he's lying mortally wounded on the side of the road, helpless, one of his own people come along the road. It says it was a priest, which is interesting because most likely, we, not most likely, we know biblically that within the Jewish setting, a priest was of the Levitical tribe of the holy priesthood. So ultimately, we need to understand that the priest was to embody the word of God. The priest was to embody and carry out and live first and foremost all of the commands of love, of righteousness, of faithfulness, of justice, of help, of sacrifice, go on and on and on. What does this priest do? His own brethren and one who was called to do that which nobody else would have been wanting to do because it was inconvenient. He doesn't go and help him. In fact, he goes to the other side of the road. And then soon thereafter, there's another individual who said was of the Levitical tribe, which maybe he wasn't a priest, but he was somebody who was a leader within the priestly tribe who helped in temple worship and sacrificial processes. He was a man who was definitely probably used in many holy ceremonies who embodied as well and knew what the right thing to do in that situation was. So the point of these two first individuals is that they were not ignorant of what they were supposed to do in that moment. And there could be a lot of reasons why they chose not to. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they thought, well, if I go there, there could be robbers waiting in hiding just for a poor innocent person to come and help this man, and then they're going to jump me too. It could have obviously been because, well, he's unclean now. He's been sullied, and if I touch him, I'm going to be unclean. It could just be they didn't feel like doing it. They didn't want to go out of the way. We don't know the reasons, but there's a lot of reasons that we can probably liken ourselves to and say, yeah, I, I, can, I can see that because I've done that myself before. Not happy, not proud of it, but I've done it before. So now the hero of the story shows up. The third individual who's walking along. It's a Samaritan. And if you have ever studied the ancient Near Eastern historical context of the people of Samaria, they were considered half-breeds by the Jews. They were considered lower than low. They were people that Jews did not have any association with. And, and it's really interesting. Why? Because technically they're related. Samaritans are half-breeds of Jews. So back when, in the Old Testament, when we see the Assyrians, they, they overthrow and they destroy the, the northern tribe of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel. Uh, the Assyrians came in and they led off captives. But they allowed some to stay in the area. And then at some point, they dispersed them and allowed them to go throughout all of the known world at that time. But while they were in captivity, other inhabitants, other foreigners, other non-Jews came into that land specifically now the land of Samaria. And even though the Old Testament said you're not to intermarry, and that's a, another sermon for another day, uh, they did. And so those who were of the southern tribe of Israel, the tribe of Judah, looked at them and said, you're sellouts. You gave in. You were to have nothing to do. And so from that point on in history, they were not considered by the true Jews, to be true Jews anymore. They were half-breeds. They were sellouts. They were individuals who did not maintain the integrity of the law. 
there is a richly even history throughout generations between these two groups of people. And in this story, Jesus has the opportunity to to say, you know, the Levites, the, the, the priests, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, but you know, there, there was, a, there was a, an unassuming, good, quiet, humble Jewish man who came into the scene and he did what his leaders in the community didn't do. Jesus didn't use him as an example. He uses the antithesis of the Jewish nation to represent how we are to respond to people in him. He says the last person on earth that you ever would have credited with the ability to show compassion the person who is your mortal enemy, the person who you think of as being unclean by their very existence. That's the person who Jesus uses in this story to uplift the moral. So the punchline is a no good Samaritan is the hero of this story. Ultimately, we see Jesus answer the man's question through this story and he does it in such a profound way think about it he said in verse 36 finally after the parable is over he said which of these three do you think was a neighbor stop underline that what was the man's original question who's my neighbor who's my neighbor who in other words again is worthy of the love that i am called to show in order to live in this eternal lifestyle, in this eternal worldview? Who's deserving of the love? Because, come on, Jesus, obviously you're not saying that everybody's worthy of love. Obviously there are people out there who are half-breeds, people who are sinners like no others, people who are the last man or women on earth that I would ever associate myself with. You cannot mean that everybody with a blanket statement is deserving of the love that we're called to show, obviously. And then Jesus shares this parable and rephrases the question. So, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? And he says, well, obviously it was the latter, which which is, again, just kind of funny. A side note, some scholars believe that this man was still so, even though he knew the truth, he was still so petty and still so angry, he didn't even want to say the Samaritan man. He didn't want to reciprocate. He didn't want to leave his lips the reality of the truth that he knows. It was that, it was that third guy. I, I get it, but I don't like it at all. We, we don't know that for sure, but it's kind of interesting that, that that's what could be a possibility here. His heart still wasn't changed, even though he had knowledge of the truth. It still didn't change him. So ultimately, here's how I'm going to answer our question based on this passage of Scripture. The question, who's worthy of my love? Let me, let me rephrase it. The question isn't or shouldn't be who's worthy of my love, but am I willing to show it? Now, last week, we opened up this series by talking specifically about the reality that God is love. And when we studied that love, we saw in so many ways that it is without question unconditional, showing that which we were not worthy of, that which we did not deserve, and yet he showed it nonetheless. 
And then we concluded with a similar story or, or, or a similar conclusion that we are called to now show it. The man's question in this parable, or before the parable, was who is my neighbor? Jesus' response exposed the illegitimacy of this question. Listen, if we start categorizing people as either worthy or unworthy of love, then we are misrepresenting the love of God. The love of God wasn't given to the worthy, but to those who were worthless. And now we're called to exhibit that love. If we say, God, we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we are called to love our neighbor just as he loved us. Then he says, now you're exhibiting, you're carrying forth my love to a world that so desperately needs to have it fully understood for what it means. Therefore, in summary, in conclusion, when, when we're really trying to understand what does this parable of the Good Samaritan teach us about love, I'll tell you this. The Samaritan's love was unconditional. It's no different than the love of God for us, for humanity. Unconditional. The Samaritan loved someone that no one else wanted to or was willing to. The Samaritan loved someone that probably would not have reciprocated the love that he showed. The Samaritan loved expecting nothing in return. And the Samaritan loved well beyond the bare minimum. Those last two phrases are, are important for you to understand. When, when it talks about the denarii, the two denarii that he gave, again, a lot of studies have been put into trying to ascertain how much was that worth how much were two denarii worth there's a lot of conjecture but really a safe place to bet would be minimum of two weeks worth of room and board at a hotel maximum of two months that's a lot of money even by today's standards two weeks worth of a hotel all expenses paid food board care he was still physically mending and needed someone to help him. He gave two weeks minimum to two months maximum worth of pay. And then he says to the innkeeper, is there anything else that I owe that has superseded that which I have provided the means for? I will pay you back. Church, do you understand that this is the love of God for us? He has given everything that we need. And if we ever have done something that we think we need more of, he's there to give and to cover our cost. He is not a God that is only going to go so far in his love for us. There is no limit to how far he is willing to love us, sacrifice for us, show compassion on our behalf. So that's incredible. And that's our hope. But the reality of what we are to walk away from with having studied this scripture together today is not just to say, God, thank you for what you've done for me. But it's now to reciprocate that love and not categorizing individuals as worthy or unworthy. 
There are going to be people in your life that are the most unworthy of the love that you want to show. And in that moment, you need to remember, so was I when God loved me. So was I when God loved me. I'm the one who crucified him. I'm the one who spit on him. I'm the one who defied him. I'm the one who lives in regular disobedience to him, and yet he still loves me. I'm the one who discriminated against him. I'm the one who thought that he wasn't deserving of my attention, and yet he still died for me. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Stop trying to place parameters upon who's deserving of your love. When I said to my wife, till death do we part in sickness and in health, better for worse, richer for poorer, all of that, I love her unconditionally. Would you stand with me here this morning? We have an incredible call as Christians. We have an incredible responsibility as men and women of God to go into a world that is so utterly confused about this topic, about what is love. Is love simply something that makes me feel good, and if I'm not feeling good, then therefore it's not love? Or therefore the love that I once felt for you is no longer there once again? No. That is an erroneous view of what love is. And in the weeks to come, we're really going to break down the Greek understandings of what love were because I believe they have profound implications for us living in the 21st century where we're trying to redefine love and what it truly is in God's eyes. So my hope for us as a church is that we would unconditionally love as God loves us. Amen, church. Let me pray for us and close in conclusion as we prepare to leave this place. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you, God, that you truly love us. And thank you, God, that there is no better example of what true love is than you, than the love that you showed us, than the love that you prepared for us, than the love that you set for us to follow. God, I pray this day that as a community, as a body, we wouldn't allow hurt or pain or evil that's been perpetrated against us to keep us from following your example. God, when we're wronged, I pray that we would remember that you were first wrong. When you told us we would be wrong, it doesn't make it right, but Lord, our response is to be that which you have set before us, mercy, grace to the most undeserving of individuals. That is your gospel. That is your message. So God, give us the strength to do that because Lord, I understand that there are people here today that have been wronged in ways that some of us never could have imagined. There are people here today that probably will be wronged in ways that we never would have perceived possible. And yet, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would dwell richly within us to give us an unbelievable power to silence the lies and the temptation of the enemy who's going to try and get us to respond 
through evil with evil. But in that moment, Lord, I pray that we would allow evil to be overcome with good and love. The love of Jesus Christ that has been exemplified for us. Jesus, I praise you today. I thank you for my church community. I pray that you would keep us, you would be with us, you would lead us and guide us into all truth and understanding. Would we serve you as salt and light in this dark and fallen world that you love and so desperately want to be saved? Use us as your instruments of righteousness. Would we take part in the responsibility that we have been given in the kingdom of God? Would we not be spectators but participators in this this divine setting, Jesus? Help us to serve you with every ounce of our being, with every breath in our body, all of the days of our lives. If we fall, help us pick us back up, I pray. And Jesus, we thank you. And Jesus, we trust you. Our faith is in you. So, Lord, be with us as we leave this place. And in Jesus' mighty and holy name, the people of God said in agreement, amen, amen, amen. Hey, God bless you. Be safe. Have a great week. And we will see you soon.